Welcome to another episode of Byzantium and Friends. I'm your host, Anthony. Before we get started, I have a couple of uh, administrative requests to make of all of you who are listening. The first one is this. It's come to my attention that podcasts tend to rise in the results of digital searches online or in iTunes uh, if um, uh, many of their listeners have given them a rating. So if you could go into whatever app you use to download the podcast and give it a rating, that way it will appear more easily and frequently um, in the results of other people who are searching for podcasts on Byzantium. Um, Thank you for that. The second is the following. We're coming up on the 30th episode, which is sort of amazing to think about. And I thought that I would do um, uh, Ask Me Anything episode, so an episode devoted to listener questions. This will be in a month or so from now. I have some other episodes lined up in the meantime. But if you want to send me some questions that you would like me to address, I'll get a co-host and we can sort through all the questions that we get and and work up an episode out of those. So just shoot me an email at uh, acaldellis at gmail.com. It's the email address that you find also on the um, the uh, host uh, webpage for the podcast at Podbean. And uh, just, you know, tell me what, uh, what you're interested in and what, uh, what you'd like me to address. Uh, it's, it's possible that it's a topic on which I'm thinking of having a separate episode, but that not, might not be for a while. And so in the meantime, you know, I can try to field the question to the best of my ability. Uh, so those are my two requests, and thank you for that. Today we're going to talk about the hidden wonders of Byzantine sigillography. And what is sigillography? Okay, so it's the study of Byzantine seals, primarily their lead seals. These are uh, this is a technology used to um, authenticate correspondence. And I have an expert, Jonathan Shea, who will tell us all about that. But let me, by way of introduction, kind of situate sigillography among the in, within the constellation of different subfields of Byzantine research. Sigillography is in some respects related, overlaps with archaeology in the sense that a number of seals turn up in archaeological excavations. Uh, So that is, seals are part of our archaeological data. It's also somewhat related to numismatics. This is the study of Byzantine coins in the sense that seals and coins are both small impressed bits of metal that have words and images on them and circulated in fairly large numbers. I think we have way more coins than seals, but still. Sigilography also has one toe in the study of Byzantine literature in the sense that at least the inscriptions on the seals are you know, reflect different styles of writing letters, but also sometimes people put prayers and poems on their seals as their sort of distinctive signatures. It's also related to art history because seals often have images of the Virgin Mary and saints on them, and these can be used in very fruitful uh, parallel research to um, icons and church decoration and such. But especially, sigillography is 
closely related to historical research and especially to prosopography. So prosopography is the creation of databases of known individuals from a historical period and all the information that we have about them. And his, Byzantine historians rely a lot, or they should rely a lot, on, on, on lead seals because they contain information of who held what office um, in what period. And as you will hear in the discussion, they are absolutely crucial for reconstructing uh, very important parts of the history of Byzantium. And, and certain periods of, of Byzantine history are known primarily through seals. Um, I'm thinking especially of the later 7th and um, early 8th centuries. Uh, so there was a, a gallery of all the subfields of Byzantine research from sigillography and numismatics to prosopography and philology and art history and archaeology and, and so forth. Uh, I remember once I was, uh, <clears throat> I was asked by an uh, immigration official upon uh, re returning to the United States uh, you know, they sometimes ask you, what do you do in Ohio? And I said, I'm a professor. And he said, what field? And I said, prosopographical sigillography. Uh, just because my head was full of it from the conference I had been at, and it had been a long trip, and it felt good to say. <laughs> anyway, uh, all right, but I'm not an expert in sigillography. I'm a complete amateur. Um, the expert that we have today to explain this field and all of its uh, hidden wonders is Jonathan Shea. He is a curator of coins and seals at Dumbart Noakes um, in Washington, D.C., and teaches for George Washington University. And he has published a book on what you can do with uh, seals, um, especially in the Middle Byzantine period, from almost taking a big data point of view. I found it quite fascinating. It's called Politics and Government in Byzantium, The Rise and Fall of the Bureaucrats, uh, because you see the seals are one of our main sources for the civilian administration and the careers of the people um, in it. And uh, we all know what an important part the survival of the Byzantine state, the civilian administration was. So this is all very, very central to the work of any historian of Byzantium. And um, just a note on what it is that Jonathan does. He it works on the collection of seals at, at Dumbart Noakes, which is quite extensive. And if you go online, you can see what wonderful things they've been doing with the collection and digitizing it and making it accessible, um, putting up all kinds of information um, about each individual seal. Um, if uh, <laughs> if sigillographers are like dragons sitting on their hoard, uh, Jonathan is like is like Smaug. I mean, he he really is sitting on top of a of a of a tremendous hoard of seals. Uh, and, and coins. Uh, but the, the seals are what will interest us here. Uh, so here then is my conversation with uh, Jonathan Shea. Uh, just a reminder, um, go and, uh, please give a rating to the podcast so that it, it rises in the polls, as it were, and send me your questions. Uh, what would you like uh, me to talk about in an in a Ask Me Anything episode uh, coming up, maybe in a month or so? Hello, Jonathan. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's start with some obvious ground rule questions. Um, what are lead seals and what is sigillography? Okay, um, lead seals are basically tiny disks of lead used to identify their owner and to secure and validate a whole, whole host of things in Byzantium. Um, 
and sigillography is the study of those discs, be it the iconography included in the seal or more often than not, the inscriptions that we find on the seals. Um, there, there are other types of seals beyond lead. Um, there are signet rings that survive uh, and wax seals are mentioned in texts, for instance. And there are a tiny number of imperial gold seals as well, but they're all basically rounding errors um, by comparison to the number of lead seals that we have. Okay, so the theme I'm going for today is that these seals may be made of lead, but they're really a gold mine. I like it. <laughs> yes, no, I mean, they really are. And I, you know, the more I've learned about seals, the more fascinated um, I've become. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about what, what you know, games we can play with seals. Uh, but let's start first with uh, some, just a, some phys physical visualization so that our audience can picture these as in, in their intended use. So can you describe um, a little bit the the kind of the physical actions and tools that were required in making these and using them and how were they used by their owners? Okay, um, so to make a seal you really need three things. You need uh, a blank, which is your lead disc. You need a volaterion, which is uh, basically a pair of pliers, and you need a hammer. Um, so the lead disc, think of just a flat disc of lead, would have a channel running through it. And um, you'd write your letter or whatever, and then you would fold it up and secure it with a piece of string. You'd then put the ends of the string into that channel. And then you'd put your blank disc of lead inside the jaws of your giant pair of pliers, your volaterion, and you'd hit the top jaw as hard as you could with a hammer. That would then collapse the channel, pinching the string, so you couldn't undo the letter or whatever without cutting the string and it would imprint your chosen design, which is carved into the jaws of the volaterion, into the lead. So you, um, you imprint and you close with, with, by hitting it with a hammer, basically. I just, I've seen one of these hammers. Uh, they, or rather the, the pliers. Um, they, they, they look like an like a instrument that sort of an evil dentist would have, right? Like, yes, they do, yeah. yeah. And so I, I actually saw one of the hammers in your, you had a replica of the hammer. Do you have one of the, the, the pliers, the Volaterion? Uh, we don't. The, um, there's a Volaterion at the Harvard Art Museum that we um, used to exhibit at Dumbarton Oaks. Um, and I'm, we might get a replica made for educational outreach activities that we do at Dumbarton Oaks. If we do, you can come back and, um, and practice striking some seals. I'd love to. So, wait, so that's an authentic one that we have? Uh, there is an authentic one at Harvard, yeah. There aren't very many left in the world, four or five. Yeah, why so few? Because, I mean, we're talking about, so, so let's just, just do the numbers here. We've got hundreds, if not thousands of people from Byzantium who are using seals mm -hmm. to, in order to seal their correspondence. So that means that each one of those people must have had this pair of tools at hand on hand right yeah exactly yeah so where they all where they all go i mean they're fairly durable instruments where do they all go um they're durable but they're useless um if it's not yours well unless you want to commit fraud of course then they could be very useful um they're just lumps of iron um so they they become quite valuable as uh, just um, as, yeah. and they wear down even though lead is soft and iron is obviously much harder eventually they wear down and you can if you can get multiple seals of the same person you can sometimes put them in the order they were struck based on the wear um of, of the imprint 
Um, so people would melt them down when they were no longer useful. We don't really know about this in Byzantium, but some societies, obviously, if they're for official uses, they actually confiscate them, the states, and destroy them later. Um, it, it's feasible that something like that happens in Byzantium because you don't want them falling into the wrong hands because they're used to validate decisions and, and, and acts. Right. Okay, so you're an official, let's say you're an official important enough to be using a seal. When you set out for your posting, you're taking with you a few hundred little lead blanks and yeah. your pair of hammer, your, your, your pliers and hammer. So essential travel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no weight restrictions. Though. No weight, re okay. And so when you're, when you're um, sending a document that, you, that is important enough to seal, so in the end, what you're giving to your courier or whoever is a folded piece of paper with a, that's, that has a string around it and dangling from the string is the seal that ties the ends together. Exactly, and ideally, um, depending on how you sealed it, but there are ways of sealing it where the, the thread goes through the document. So when you open it, the seal hangs off the bottom of the document and continues to authenticate it after. Um, after it's opened. And there are some documents that actually describe the seal that should be attached to them in the text. Um, and they will say they're invalid if the seal isn't there as well as the um, sender's signature. Okay. But they get used for more than just correspondence as well. Um, so it's, you know, correspondence is legal documents, thing, wills or land documents, um, the bags of money given out by the emperor, Emperors um, during the payment ceremonies during Holy Week were all sealed as a guarantee the contents hadn't been tampered with. Um, there's a great couple of great seals in the collection at Dumbarton Oaks, and the inscriptions say, um, "When you see the seal of the Simponos, abide by his rulings as to the scale and the weights." And the Simponos was the deputy of the the eparch, basically the governor of Constantinople. And one of the duties of his office was to go around the marketplaces and monitor the merchants to make sure they weren't cheating people with dodgy weights and dodgy scales. And that seal was obviously attached to the scale, so that people going to the market knew they could trust the merchant. Right. Whence the expression "seal of authenticity." Exactly. Yeah, because we don't seal things like that anymore. Um, no. Um, and you get, there are some fun ones, um, a really interesting handful from the early 8th century, which have the name and the office of their owner, in this case, the controller of a government warehouse on, on one side, but then the imprint of fabric on the other. And they must have been struck whilst slightly heated, uh, which would make them easier to strike, and then um, struck against the fabric wrapped around whatever the controller of this warehouse was either issuing or bringing into the warehouse. Um, so there's quite a variety of reasons um, that people use seals. Okay, right. Um, so who use seals uh, in Byzantium? I mean, can we specify the general social class of people who would be using them? Um, and and do, do we have seals of people we know through other sources? <laughs> Yeah, we do. Um, I mean, lots of people use them. Um, quite a lot of surviving seals were struck by people working for the state or religious institutions. Um, so we have clerks, judges, soldiers, bishops, monks, um, obviously emperors, patriarchs. We have some more, um, some non-state related professions like butchers, uh, a few merchants, 
um, a couple of bathhouse attendants or bathhouse managers, I suppose. Um, and there are seals of people who didn't perform functions for the state, but were in possession of a title, um, so a court title. And then a lot of seals, and these are the ones we're really working on now at Dumbarton Oaks, that just record a name um, and, and nothing else. Mostly seals were struck by men. There are far, far, far fewer seals of women than there are of men, partly because of the official nature of, of a lot of seals. Um, on top of that, there are anonymous seals, which you assume would be sort of, um, you can't afford one of these things of your own, but you can pop down to the guy on the corner who will seal your will for you. And they often have sort of catchy little poems on them, like find out who seal I am by looking at the letter. Um, but sealer wasn't a profession. Like y y you wouldn't no. go to someone who, whose job, like a notary, right? Whose job it is to seal your documents. And he's got like a rack with all the different names. Like you choose a license plate or something. You, like, no, normally a person who is important enough to use a seal normally would have his own. They'd normally have their own. Yeah. And they were responsible almost certainly responsible for the design as well. Um, and you asked about fame, yeah, we do have some famous people. Um, so we have uh, a couple of seals of Nikitas Hanyatis, who obviously wrote about the empire in the late 12th sure. during the Fourth Crusade. Um, so they were quite, quite a fun find when we were cataloging. Um, we've got one that's almost certainly uh, the seal of John Kokuas, who led the empire's armies. Middle decades of the or early middle decades of the 10th century. Um, I say almost certainly because it has all of his court titles and his job and it's the right date. But people didn't really use family names at that point, so it just says John. Yeah, so sure. unless there is another John with this most important job that went unrecorded in the sources, it's him. Good. Uh, what about saints? Do we have seals that belong to saints? We do, yeah. Um, so we have one of St. Andrew of Crete. For instance, um, it's a beautiful, beautiful seal. It has St. Titus on it. Um, and it's one of the earliest seals that we have. He was a hymnographer. And it's one of the earliest seals we have that is written in verse. Um, the, the inscription is actually written in verse. Um, it, it's, you have to be careful when, when saying that this is the seal of a certain person, though, because they, they could always be a cousin of the same name. Or, um, you know, we have seals from the... Uh, late 5th, possibly early, sorry, late 6th, possibly early 7th century, that say Procopius and Belisarius on them. What? No and way. You, you desperately want it to be the Procopius and the yes. Belisarius. But the Procopius ones sometimes say Patricios and a few other things. The Belisarius one just says Belisarius. That's all it says on it. Yeah, and his seals would say more than that. You assume so. At the time, maybe, maybe not. The, the, the earlier seals tend to have less written on them than later seals. I'm still holding out hope, I guess, is what I'm getting at. But you have to be really careful because you desperately want it to be the famous person, obviously. Right. And I think the name Belisarius actually became popular um, after his career, you know, yeah. in the early 6th century. So I think on the um, papyrological side, I think I have found the name Belisarius sort of popping up in papyri in Egypt, you know, of all places, but in the later 6th century. So, you know, mothers or fathers were naming their kids after him, but whatever. Um, dreams, yeah. So... Uh, yeah, so obviously, if you have a, 
a seal that you can definitively match to a known historical individual, um, that is intrinsically more interesting for us as scholars. But let's talk a little bit about where one finds seals today, because my understanding is that, that there's a market in seals, and so I'm just kind of wondering how that market works. But let's back up a little bit. Where do we find our seals? Um, most seals in the world today are found in museum collections, collections that were built in the late 19th and, and, and mostly the first half of the 20th century. Um, so the largest collection in the world um, is the one that I work with at Dumbarton Oaks in Washington, DC, about 17,000 seals. The Hermitage in St. Petersburg houses are around 13,000 or so. There are another 10,000 in Paris, um, and then big collections in, um, in Athens, in Istanbul. The Vatican has a good collection. Um, quite a few other of Europe's capital cities have collections. There's one in Geneva. There's mostly museum collections. There are about 60 to 80,000 estimates vary because the collections, not all the collections are published. Um, so somewhere between 60 and 80,000 seals. And they do turn up on archaeological sites as well. Um, several hundred have been found at Corinth but they always usually pale by comparison to coin finds. So there are tens of thousands of Byzantine coins from Corinth and only a several hundred seals. Okay, so these, the seals in the collection, do they all go back to archeological findings ultimately? Like ultimately are all these seals found archeologically or have they been circulating in some other kind of way as antiquities or whatever for, for centuries before that? No, it's really hard to tell because a lot of the collections in the world came from one dealer in Istanbul, a chap called George Zakos. He also published one of the, an early and very influential catalog of seals, he tended to publish them before he sold them. Um, and we don't really know where he got them. Um, he used to tell stories about them washing up on the shores of the Sea of Marmara. Uh, and they'd be gathered in Istanbul, which is where his shop was. Um, and that's entirely possible when they were building lots of modern Istanbul. They used to dump the surface soil into the sea. So it's certainly possible that during periods of heavy construction, you'd then find seals just appearing um, along the shoreline. Um, but he was... That, that's, that's the story he told. That's really all we have, unfortunately. So most seals in the world don't have a provenance as such, or an archaeological context as provenance. It's why the collections in Bulgaria, <clears throat> excuse me, are so important because they, they so very often do, and they're very well published. So um, they form almost, almost a nice control group for the rest of us working with museum collections. But at the same time, there's not much of an incentive to forge them. In other words, they're not that valuable. So you can go and buy seals, right? Is there some kind of online clearinghouse for seals or do you have to look at various vendors or how, how do you buy seals? Um, yeah, they're not really worth forging because they don't really fetch that high of a price. I mean, you, you'd forge a coin if you were going to forge. Not that I'm advocating that people forge things. Um, yeah, the um, auction houses, basically. Um, there are a bunch of auction houses in Germany, in France, in, uh, in England, um, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Um, New York, obviously, and um, they tend to crop up in numismatic auctions. So oh, yeah. Almost as a byproduct of numismatic auctions, you, 
you look um, you look in the Byzantine coin section of a numismatic auction, and there are sometimes some seals shoved in there as well. So, how much does a seal, a Byzantine seal, go for these days? Oh, um, anything from a couple of hundred dollars through to just a couple of weeks ago, a seal of the 11th century patriarch Alexius Studites sold for over 3,200 Swiss francs. How much is that in, in real money? Um, actually, it's, it's about $3,200, actually. I was just, yeah. Okay. Change rates roughly one to one. It's a little more than $3,200. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's one of the most expensive seals I've seen for sale in, in years. Is it because of the state of its preservation or is it because of its, its value uh, of association with a known historical individual? For that one, it has to be the known individual because it was not in good, preserva- good state of preservation at all. You tend to get uh, a premium, a price premium, if either there is a, a particularly fine piece of iconography on the seal, a really nice image of a saint or holy figure, or if we know who struck it and that person is, is interesting in some way. Okay, so we can drive up the value of some seals by making the people mentioned on them more famous. That's right. Make them more famous or just discover who struck the seal. If you can prove that a previously unidentified seal was actually owned by a famous person, then you increase the value of it. Yep. Interesting. <laughs> okay. Um, we, we can talk about some, some schemes of, in, in, along those lines after the show. Uh, so, okay. So what's interesting about these seals is that, in my mind at least, each one of them represents an, an act of communication. Now, you mentioned that some were used for sealing bags and, you know, the, um, uh, like the mosaic image of uh, Constantine the Ninth and Hagia Sophia bringing the, the emperor money bags, right? He's got this big bag of gold. And, okay, I mean, in a certain sense, that's an act of communication as well. Uh, but each of these sealings is the, is the remaining trace of some um, uh, movement of information from one place to another. And what's interesting about them is that we've lost the actual information that was being communicated, the, the letter, but we have part of the, what I call the metadata, right? So like when you send an email, it's like from so-and-so and you've got, you know, the date and you've got to and subject matter or whatever. So seals are a kind of metadata of a, of a bulk of communications in bulk because we have so many seals. And so I, I kind of picture you as, a, as an expert on seals. You're sitting on top of your collection there as kind of like the equivalent of the NSA, just, just gathering in lots of metadata about who's communicating with whom and when, because we can roughly date them, you know, based on the style and the, and the lettering and so forth. And so you, what you've got is, it, well, why don't you tell us what kind of information is recorded on the seal that, we, that historians can use? So um, the information is, um, it varies over time, to be honest, Um, although it always identifies the owner, um, except with the anonymous seals I mentioned earlier, obviously. Um, And the way the information was written changes uh, as well. So um, say fifth, sixth centuries, there's a real fashion for monograms. So you take the letters of the owner's name and you arrange it into a block or cross shape. And whoever receives the letter has to be able to decode that. Um, and sometimes they're, they're not easy to decode, particularly once they start trying to write more than one word in the monogram. So if they want to say their name and their job, 
for instance, or if they start using one character to represent multiple letters. So um, say taking two of the three lines of an alpha, capital alpha, and using it to represent a capital lambda and an alpha. And there are plenty of monograms like that that have multiple resolutions, either because there are so many letters in it, because they're trying to get you to guess two or three words, or because there are words with the same letters in. So every time somebody used the monogram for Justinian, they could actually be using the monogram for Anastasius, for instance, because they have exactly the same number of letters, uh, same, exactly the same letters. Yes, just arranged differently. Just to, but for most of Byzantine history, they, they switch to um, lines of text because they have more to say than they can reasonably expect you to understand from a monogram. And the formula remains pretty consistent. You often start with um, a prayer, most often to the Virgin, but there, there's, there's some variety there. Then comes the owner's name, then their title or titles, and then their office or officers. Um, from the late 10th century onwards, they might round the whole thing off with a family name. Um, and you just sort of get used to that. That kicks in in the, um, in the later 6th century, and you just sort of get used to that. And then in the mid-11th century, the whole formula starts to break down because they start writing their inscriptions increasingly in 12-syllable metrical verses. Um, and there are certain rules to those, and jobs and titles don't necessarily conform to those rules. So out goes the emphasis on that. And this comes in when an emphasis on um, family and court position rather than job and function starts to, to dominate um, ideas of status in Byzantium. So the two things are tied together. Um, so it's always identifying, but it's identifying in a way that highlights what they valued most at that time be it relationship to the state, or be it um, sort of familial bonds and relationships. Yeah, and there are ways also of dating the seals, either precisely or approximately. So that way we can distribute them across the centuries, right? Yeah, exactly. So there are um, certain formula in the inscriptions that are only used in certain periods. And the, the way that the dating process all started was um, Nikos Economides, who was the first person to work to be uh, in charge of the Dumbarton Oaks collection. He basically took every seal at Dumbarton Oaks that he could actually date because we knew who the owner was, or very rarely because the seal itself had a date on it. And he put them all in order, and then he assessed the various features from borders to decorations, and most specifically to letter types and styles. And he put them all in order and used that to create a chart of all those things that people have been refining since he wrote that book that allows us to date seals. Right, similar to the way in which pottery um, is uh, dated. Exactly, yeah, you have sort of ideal types and you look for certain ligatures, um, certain shape letters, so ninth century letters, sort of broadly speaking, are quite tall and slender, um, whereas 10th century letters are often very square, just as a... Yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. So I'd just like the um, audience to kind of let, let this sink in uh, that we have about, it's like this huge prospographical database of not 80, not 60 to 80,000 people, because obviously we have multiple copies of certain seals, but many tens of thousands of individuals distributed across a span of six or seven centuries 
that we can date more or less that give us information about personal names, um, offices, uh, to court titles, uh, either poems or prayers, and and those obviously the distribution of those changes over time. But I just want everybody to realize just how crucial that kind of database is uh, for all kinds of uh, historical and social research. Um, and so I wanted to ask you, so now that we have this, what kinds of research is enabled by this corpus? Um, well, lots of things. Um, we have a bit of a sort of a, an unofficial slogan at DO that when people need to highlight something, oh, we have a seal for that, because we probably do. Um, so administrative and military structure, obviously, all the way pretty much through Byzantine history. The Byzantines didn't really bother writing down how their empire worked or who ran it. Um, some people crop up in histories, but the closest thing we have to a description of the state hierarchy are a handful of lists drawn up to help organize ceremonies and banquets. And those are relatively uh, chronologically restricted. So seals fill in the gap. Um, and and they, more importantly, this what they, when you said about people is important, that they, they cover areas that the guy making the seating chart in Constantinople or writing a history of the empire just didn't care about, such as those too low in the hierarchy to be invited to that sort of thing. Um, so early in our period, I mentioned the system of state warehouses already. Our knowledge of that system comes almost entirely from a series of rather unusual seals, which are dated, which is very unusual, and have the imperial image, even though they're not struck by an emperor, which is incredibly unusual. Um, Lane Wilson, who I work with at Dumbarton Oaks, used seals to trace the evolution of a subordinate military office across centuries of the empire's history and tried to figure out who the people doing this job were, what their background was, and explored how they expressed their piety. Um, and they're obviously useful you know, beyond looking at the state. Um, so uh, another, <clears throat> another project that's come out of the Dumbarton Oaks cataloging initiative, um, Joe Clinius, a guy working on the project um, discovered a bunch of seals, all dated to the first half of the eighth century. It's a period where we can date relatively narrowly. Um, some struck by known individuals, and instead of the usual formula, all had quotations from the Psalms on them. And a lot of these people were positioned closely to the emperors of the time. This is obviously the beginnings of the iconoclast period. So he looked at these Psalm quotations, tried to figure out who was using them, who was not using them, what positions they had explore their piety, possible connections. Um, so that's that's another sort of fun area. Um, and people really is kind of key. You, you mentioned all these people that are, are recorded because of seals and seals are our greatest source of evidence for the existence of just people in Byzantium. Um, if, if you go through all of, the, all of the texts left from Byzantine history, there aren't actually that many people mentioned in them. Yeah. Um, and most people obviously don't make written sources because they're not very important. You know, generals who fight or politicians or bishops, they get in sometimes, not all the time. Um, but most people don't. Um, so for me, that's the fun thing about seals. That's sort of this, this point where um, records of how the empire or the church ran meet this, this um, sort of relic of, of thousands of people who lived in Byzantium. It's all that's left of them. Imagine if all we really knew about the population of the United States in a few hundred years time was a couple of thousand business cards. That's cool. <laughs> yes. Um, and no one seal gives you a great deal of information about any one person or, or office. 
But if you put enough of them together, then you can start building a picture of uh, someone's life or a job or, or maybe a family over multiple generations or even a place. Because um, quite a lot of SEALs mention places, people, I, I work in X city or province or that sort of thing. Yeah, that's actually a very interesting point uh, that you made there. In in our historical narratives, individual there are very few individuals who are mentioned by name that you have good information about. Now, our historical narratives will are useful because they will often refer to large groups of people, like the inhabitants of a city or an army or you know, victims of a plague or whatever. So. They give us information about larger groups, albeit in rather you know, in aggregate terms. And, you know, it's uh, always difficult to trust large numbers and sources and so forth. But when it comes to individuals, this is probably our largest corpus, right? Uh, a, you know, of, um, database of individuals from Byzantium. It's from SEALs. Yeah. 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 Um, until you reach sort of the later 12th, early middle 13th century, yes. For the Paleologum period, there are not that many seals. Not that many seals, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, are, are there any, oh, oh, and by the way, just for clarification, there are cases where we have um, many seals belonging to one individual, but at different stages of his career? Yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, so, my favorite example of that is actually a judge. Um, his name's um, Constantine. He's from the Constantinopolitan family of the Promundinos uh, um, uh, family. And he's known only from seals. And throughout his life, he was granted increasingly important court titles. And because of that, we can put his, the stages of his career in order. Um, so he starts off as a, a judge in a province. Uh, at this point, the judges were basically the governors of the province, uh, the province of Karsianon in central Anatolia. And he's ranked somewhere in the bottom third of the hierarchy. He returned to Constantinople, where he sat as a judge of the vellum, which put him on one of the most important tribunals in the empire. A few years later, he goes back to central Anatolia, to the Anatolicon province, been promoted. And then he moves to become the judge governor of a province on the northern coast of Anatolia, the Armeniacon. He goes to the Bukalarion province in Western Anatolia, then back to the Anatolicon theme where he gets promoted again. Um, and then he gets promoted again and moves to the Thracesian theme around the year 1070. So about 40 years after his first seal uh, in the Thracesian theme. That's obviously a quite a long, interesting career, and it took him all over the central provinces of Byzantium. But it shows you the sorts of um, sorts of uh, information we can gather from seals about about one person who otherwise we would know nothing about. That is that's an interesting career. Um, there's a lot of mobility in there. Yes, yeah, a lot of mobility, um, and you. That's sometimes that's the case. You have people who spend, as far as we know, um, their entire careers jumping from province to province, not necessarily as many provinces as he did. Um, sometimes people spend their entire career in Constantinople, and obviously, you know, a mixture of the two, where people jump from the capital out into the provinces and back again. Wow. Uh, you know, I can, I'm trying to imagine what this man would have thought if you told him that in a thousand years, <laughs> you will be known solely from that little thing that you just struck there on that, uh, that letter there. 
and they're not the prettiest of seals either. <laughs> well, yeah, sure, but that that that's a head spinning realization that that that's what you're going to be known from. I mean, in in a, in one respect, he's kind of lucky to be remembered at all. Most he of is. his Antines were not or are not. Yeah. So you mentioned um, offices and titles. Can you explain a little bit the difference between those two? Yeah. So an office is um, office is a job, basically. So you're a general, a judge, clerk, whatever. Uh, titles are more a mark of a person's social standing. They're they're rank in the court hierarchy. Um, so you the emperor gives you a title, and um, unlike jobs, you don't retire from titles. We have examples of uh, of people actually keeping their titles after becoming a monk. So there's a guy in the late 11th century named uh, John Ducas, and he's the has the rank of Caesar, really high rank, and he becomes a monk under the name Ignatius, and he gives everything up, gives his family name up, gives his name of John, takes the name of Ignatius, but his um, his seals say Ignatius, monk, and Caesar. <laughs> Once a Caesar, always a Caesar. Right? Exactly. <laughs> Um, but titles aren't, they're not just purely honorific. Um, they give people access to court, they allow them and sometimes require them to participate in ceremonies and they come with an annual stipend. So there are lots of perks to getting, um, to having a title. And the two often go together. So a person who was a general would also have a corresponding court title. But it was definitely possible to have an office and no title or a title and no office. And we have lots and lots of seals from all three scenarios. You tend to move up the hierarchy of titles or just stay still. You don't go down. But when it comes to officers, you can move vertically, like Constantine, the judge, moves to govern multiple provinces, um, or up or, in fact, down. Right. So you've just written a book that um, exploits this conjunction of office and title as recorded on seals in a sort of big data kind of way. And you, you do some pretty incredible things with that conjunction because um, it's, uh, it's it, there are shit. Well, I'll, maybe I'll let you explain it because there, there are kind of shifts in which um, court titles correspond or are conjoined to which offices. And I think you use that, uh, the change in that over time to draw some pretty interesting conclusions. But I mean, you do a number of other things in the book, but can you can talk a little bit about that? Like, what does sigillography enable us to do there? Yeah, so, um, yes, yeah, so one of the things I do in my book is I use the pairing of title and office to try and assess how important an office was. Um, so these titles, they're honorific, but they come with perks and they come with a stipend um, and they come with status. And for my research, that's really the most important thing. Um, the hierarchy changes quite radically across the 11th century, which is the period that I write about. There are twice as many titles by 1080 as there have been by the year in, in the year 1000. So um, you can't just do a one-for-one -one comparison. So trying to see where the titles attached to a specific job fell in the hierarchy as the century progressed uh, seemed to me like a really good way of trying to figure out the fortunes of the office itself. And the, so the core idea of my book is that if you put enough people like the Judge Constantine together, you can start to get an idea of how the empire was run, um, who was doing it, and therefore gain a, a little understanding of the priorities of the emperors in the 11th century. Um, so I look at roughly nine, 
960s through to the early 12th century, focusing on Constantinople. Um, and that's, I mean, I find it a fascinating period. Um, I know you do too. Um, you know, Byzantium transforms into the great power in the region, experiences economic expansion, increased urbanization, quite a lot of fun political upheaval, upheaval and shenanigans, and then, you know, collapses. And then there's obviously partial recovery in the 12th century. Um, and we hear a lot about imperial mismanagement from written sources, but very little concrete information about how the empire operated or all the emperor's agendas and priorities. So um, take the judiciary, for example. Emperors say a lot about the law and the judicial process in the 11th century. Um, best known example is probably the law school set up in the 1040s by Constantine IX under John Zifilinos. Emperor gives a big speech, it's this transformational moment in how the empire is run, and then it collapses after a couple of years and everyone sort of forgets about it. But if you look at the seals of the Constantinopolitan judiciary, particularly the judges of the vellum, that sort of high court level of judge, um, we see that from about the year 1000 onwards, they're being steadily promoted in terms of the titles that they held, and they're being promoted at a rate faster than other groups with whom they'd initially been on, in, on an equal footing. And once we know that, and then you can add in a few more judicial officers, people like the Drungarius or the Vigler, you see that the law school of the 1040s is actually founded quite a long way into an ongoing process. It's a symptom of this process uh, of the advancement of the judiciary that started decades earlier, right. probably under the reign of the Emperor Basil II. So, Pairing titles and officers on seals and you know, focusing on the, on the judiciary lets us sort of look past the rhetoric and maybe the flashy experiments that did get recorded to the daily work of government and to understand a little bit more about what the emperors were trying to do um, and, and, and how they were trying to do it and, and who they were getting to do it. Yeah, so here's an analogy that I thought of. I was thinking about this uh, discussion in advance and, and I was thinking, so it's kind of like you have a corporation today and... You have people on the marketing side and people on the finance side and, you know, people in the executive side, whatever. And those are their offices. Those are their, the jobs that they do. But there are also a lot of perks that go around the, the corporate office, like what your parking lot, uh, you know, where's your parking space? Or do you, do you have a window on your office or do you have a corner office with lots of windows? Right. And kind of what you're doing is you're watching how the different functions, the different jobs correlate with all the different perks within the organization. And you're seeing that, well, in this period, the, I don't know, the, the legal side suddenly starts getting all of these perks. And so, which means they're kind of moving up in importance uh, within the organization, uh, possibly at the expense of, of, of other groups or they're outpacing them, right? Um, and so today you would find that in most corporations, which have become essentially Banks, even if they're selling cars, they're essentially banks. The finance side is probably the one with all the corner offices. Uh, but if you have a sigilographer, I'll just put him in the basement or something like that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's where we're happiest. Um, yeah, and seals are really our only way of doing that. I mean, the, the Byzantine government, the, the last hierarchy list that gets drawn up is dated at latest to about 975. Um, so if you want to know how things were happening in this really interesting century, the 11th century, seals are your only source for that. Um, and we don't have a list of which officers were important, but we do know which 
order titles came in. So you pair the officers with the titles and you can start to put the officers in a rough order as well. So you say the more perks, the more status uh, afforded to the, um, to, the, um, to the holder of an office, then the more important that office must be. And if you start to see patterns like the high judiciary are being rewarded at a rate significantly higher than people who are involved in the imperial secretariat, for instance, and obviously emperors in the period where that's happening are valuing the judiciary more than those other groups. Yeah. Yeah. And so I want to say that this is a very innovative use of seals. I've never seen, I mean, I've seen maybe there's a few articles that were that did a little bit like this, but nothing ever on the scale uh, on which you do it. Uh, most sigillography that I've read so far has so for one thing it's tremendously important for historians because like you said earlier there's so many periods of byzantine history where our knowledge of the administrative structure of the empire and its, its whole fiscal side and even sometimes its military evolution we know that only from seals um and it, there's in, in particular the later seventh and eighth centuries are these periods where if we were to rely on our written sources, we wouldn't be able to understand how the institutions are working at all, um, especially since those sources are a bit later and they project later terminology back onto those centuries. Um, and so for if you're looking at the 8th century, trying to reconstruct just the administrative structure really involves um, working with seals. But what I think you're doing is is even it's it's more sophisticated than that. It's not just reconstructing a structure, but to tracing patterns of evolution within it um, to see what areas of their administration the emperors were favoring, or you know just generally what part of the whole system was was getting ahead or or dropping out. And sometimes when you find a lot of people with the same kinds of with the same court title, you, you start to infer that maybe that's being devalued in some way. Um, right. Yeah, and there is, um, you know, a few uh, of the writers in the 11th century, Selos does it best, you know, criticize the emperors for giving out too many titles. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying, I don't want to claim in my book that they didn't give out a lot of titles. Um, and to be honest, the only way to really understand, to, to be sure, would be to do what I've done for Constantinople bureaucrats with every single seal of the 11th century that mentions a title. And then you could see the proportions that were being given out. But what I can say is that people are not being indiscriminately promoted uh, in the bureaucracy. There are some officers that have the same titles attached to them in the year 1080, let's say, as they had in the year 960. And the holders of that office have not received promotion in the same way that, say, the judges, some of the judges have. Mm. Um, so it is not, I think, I think there's a decent case to be made that whatever was going on in with the court as a whole, when you look at the bureaucracy in Constantinople, it's not just, I'm emperor now, everybody had a raise. It's much more thoughtful than that. Um, there may have been episodes of that uh, happening, but when you look at the, the sort of 150 odd year span that I cover in the book, um, those bumps are sort of ironed out and you can see um, a much more nuanced application of these 
titles to the various offices. Yeah, because our, our written sources will say, oh, this emperor came along, it's like, promotions for all. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody right. gets a title. And you know, I sit there, I sat there looking at all the, I have a lot of tables that I drew up um, for my book, and I sat looking at them and thinking, well, promotions for all would have been news to all of these guys who <laughs> yeah. got a promotion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and meanwhile, actually, um, new titles have been created above the one they hold in the hierarchy, so they're actually worse off. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We'll drop from the middle to somewhere near the bottom. Okay, I got some oddball questions for you. Um, okay. Well, actually, oddball is the word. Um, so, are there any seals with just really wacky stuff on them? Yeah, there are. There, um, there are some fun inscriptions. Um, so. The closest thing to a joke that we probably have on a seal um, comes from a, a seal with a poem on it. And it says, um, it's a seal of a tax assessor. It's kind of cool because he's obviously not a very important man. He's a tax assessor of Athens as well, which makes him even, you know, not a major province at the time. Hey, um, uh, them so fighting words. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he's a tax assessor named Michael Rodios. You know, family name there, probably a clue as to his family origin. Yeah. And the inscription just says, Savior, make high your assessment of your servant, Michael Rodios, assessor of Athens. <laughs> Speaking of Athens, so that's interesting that he, he should be in Athens. Uh, you know that there's the um, inscriptions or graffiti on the Parthenon columns? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah, because in Byzantine times, so this was the Church of the Virgin, and uh, they used the columns. I imagine the walls also, but those haven't survived. Um, of the columns of the Parthenon to carve epitaphs and prayers and all kinds of things on them. Uh, they're very badly worn now, but fortunately there was an edition of them uh, back in the 60s. And you, you can still see some of them. And most are just, uh, they're kind of equivalent to your seals in some ways. It's a, just, you know, in the year such and such, the bishop so-and-so died, and you know, whatever. Um, but some of them are really odd. And um, there's one similar to the one that you said, which is someone carved, this is on a column of the Parthenon, and he says, something like, Maria, full of grace or whatever, um, make the man who's shagging my bride to have a hernia <laughs> <laughs> and make me his doctor. <laughs> oh, I like the twist at the end. That's good. <laughs> yes, yes. And someone took the time to carve that right, in stone. Uh, yeah, and there's another guy who, who wrote, the number of columns is 54. That's, <laughs> that's what he wrote. They're actually 58. <laughs> but at the time, well, at the time when he did that, I think that four of them were built into the apse of the church in the back. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, interestingly violent, perhaps. My, probably my favorite inscription on the seal. Uh, in our collection because it is so unusual um again recording a family name because it's a family name worth recording it's um seal of the younger brother of the emperor alexius the first communos on the obverse it has saint demetrius standing with a drawn sword and on the reverse the inscription says i am the power behind nikephorus communos bearing a sword that slaughters his enemies <laughs> yeah <laughs> Okay. Well, 
that actually that tallies with Komnenian court literature. Um, some of the poems of Prodromos, uh, now these were addressed to um, yeah, John Komnenos. Uh, some of Prodromos's poems talk about the emperor wading through the blood of the barbarians, sword drawn. Oh, there we go. There you go. That's court, court entertainment. And that's the period when they're really hammering home family names on seals as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, we're almost out of time. I have a okay. question I ask most of my guests at the end. Do you recommend two good books? Um, so I just finished rereading um, a history book on um, English history by a professor at the University of Manchester called The Story of England, which is a really cool take on local history as a window on national history from one small parish in the middle of Leicestershire. He tells the entire history of England, which I think is a really fun way of, of telling a story like that. Um, and one of my favorite books of all time is uh, Good Omens by Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman, about angel and a demon, a witch and a witch hunter sort of teaming up to stop the apocalypse, which feels semi-relevant at the moment. Have you uh, seen the TV show? I have seen the TV show. I really like the TV show as well. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Okay. I'll put it on my list. Yeah, it's good. They get two brilliant people to play the lead characters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of whom has played Tony Blair three times, I think. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> as far, you know, as far as concerned, he's Tony Blair. I, I... <laughs> yeah. Try to get past that because he plays an angel. Okay. Big, big, uh, big uh, career leap for him there. Okay. <laughs> Uh, all right, great. Uh, Jonathan, it, this was a great pleasure. Thank you for coming Thank on. Thanks, it's been fun.